my dear, my very dear Wormwood, my poppet, my pet. How mistakenly, now that all is lost, you come whimpering to ask me whether the terms of affliction which I address you meant nothing from the beginning. Far from it. Rest assured, my love for you and your love for me are as alike as two peas. I have always desired you, as you, pitiful fool, desired me. The difference is that I am the stronger. I think they will give you to me now, or a bit of you. Love you? Why, yes. As daintily as a morsel as I ever grew fat on, you have let a soul slip through your fingers. The howl of sharpened famine for that loss re-echoes at the moment through the levels of the kingdom of noise down to the very throne itself. It makes me mad to think on it. How well I know that that happened the instant when they snatched him from there was a sudden clearing of his eyes, was there not? As he saw you for the first time and recognized the part of you had had in him and knew that it had had it no longer. Just think, I'm at the beginning of your agony. Let this be the beginning of your agony. What he felt at that moment, as if a scab had fallen from an old sore, as if he were emerging from a hideous shell, as if he shuffed off for good, all defiled, a wet clinging garment. By hell, it is misery enough to see them in their mortal days, taking off dirtied and uncomfortable clothes, and splashing hot water, and giving little grunts of pleasure, stretching their eased limbs. What then, this final stripping, this complete cleansing? The more one thinks about it, the worse it becomes. He got away so easily. No great no gradual misgivings, no doctor's sentence, no nursing home, no operating theater, no false hopes of life, sheer instantaneous liberation. One moment it seemed to be all our world, the scream of bombs, the fall of houses, the stink and taste of high explosive on the lips and the lungs, the feet burning with weariness, the heart cold with horrors, the brain reeling, the legs aching. <clears throat> Next moment all this was gone, gone like a bad dream never again to be of any account. Defeated, outmaneuvered fool. Did you mark how naturally, as if you've been born for it, the earth-born vermin entered this new life? How all doubts became in the twinkling of an eye ridiculous. I know what the creature was saying to itself. Yes, of course. After he saw you, he also saw them. I know how it was. He reeled back dizzy and blinded, more hurt by them than he had ever been by the bombs. The degradation of it. That this thing, on, this thing of earth and slime could stand upright and converse with spirits before you. A spirit could only cower. Perhaps you had hoped that this awe and strangeness of it would dash his joy. But that is the cursed thing. The gods are strange to mortal eyes, yet they are not strange. He had no, not the faintest conception till that very hour of how they would look. He even doubted their existence. But when he saw them, he knew that he had always known them and realized what part of each one of them had played at many an hour in his life when he had stopped himself alone so that now he could say to them one by one, not, who are you, but, ah, so it was you this whole time. All that they were and said at this meeting woke memories. The dim consciousness of friends about him, which he had 
haunted his solitudes from infancy and now are explained. The central music in every pure experience of what he had always just evaded in his memory now last recovered. Recognition that made him free of their complacency almost before the limbs of his corpse became quiet. Only you were left outside. He not only saw them, he saw him. This animal, this thing begotten in a bed, could look on him. What is blinding, suffocating fire to you is now cool light to him. It, cl- it is clarity itself, and it wears the form of a man. You would like, if you could, to interpret this patient's prostration in the presence, his self with horse, and utter knowledge of his sins. Yes, Wormwood, a clearer knowledge even than yours. On the analogy of your own choking and paralyzing sensations when you encounter the deadly air that breathes from the heart of heaven. But this is all nonsense. It pains he still may have to encounter. But they embrace those pains. They would not barter for them for any earthly pleasure. All the delights of sense and heart or intellect which you could only once have attempted him. Even the delights of virtue itself now seem to him in comparison but the half nauseous attractions of a haggard prostitute would seem to a man who hears his true beloved whom he had loved all his life, whom he had believed to be dead, is alive and now at his door. He is caught up in that. World where pain and pleasure take on transfinite values and all our arithmetic is dismayed. Once more, the inexplicable meets us. Next to the curse of uselessness, tempters like yourself, the greatest curse upon us is the failure of our intelligence department. If only we could find out what he is really up to. Alas, that knowledge in and of itself is so hateful and mawkish a thing, should it be necessary for the power. Sometimes I, I am almost in despair. All that sustains me is the conviction that our realism, our rejection in the face of all temptations, of all silly nonsense and claptrap, must win in the end. Meanwhile, I have you to settle with. Most truly, I do sign myself, your increasingly and ravenously affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Um, if you didn't catch all that and understand what was going on, uh, Chad was reading an, uh, an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. And if you're unfamiliar, C.S. Lewis was a university professor. He had been an atheist who had converted to Christian, the Christian faith. And he uh, lived during World War II. And uh, he became known for his, what was known as his broadcast talks to speak to this, the, the British while they were being bombed by the Germans. And he was always encouraging them, trying to get them to see and try to understand and follow God, but to realize that there was not just a physical war that was going on between nations, but there was actually a greater spiritual war that was going on behind the scenes that many of us don't understand or really recognize. And he, what he does is he captures or tries to capture through this picture in ways that we can understand about this older demon writing to this younger demon about his interactions with uh, a person. And as you see, you can hear, and, and sometimes it gets lost on us. Uh, we're American. We don't have as many words as uh, s- s- someone such as C.S. Lewis. But he brings it out to show that this, this man, he, whom he had been in Satan's clutches, becomes a believer in Christ. And he is angry at that. And it's, it's showing that there's a spiritual war that is going on for the hearts of men and women. And we are in an invisible war. This is what we've been talking about for the past several weeks. And as you've seen in the video, there's, there's so much to this war that we can't even begin to understand. 
Uh, we don't realize how much it's going on. In some ways, we're just like it was in the Matrix. I don't know if you remember if you've seen that movie or not, but there's this part where Neo has been awakened from this slumber, and he says, my eyes hurt. And they, they said, he goes, why do my eyes hurt? They said, because you've never used them before. You've been living in an illusion. And in some ways, that's what the Word of God says, is that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers, that they think this is the only world that there is. They don't understand of what the real world, the spiritual world that God has created, what's going on for the hearts and minds of men and women, that there is a spiritual battle beyond our comprehension that is going on between the devil and, and God. And it's really not even waged against, uh, it's not, God is not as participant as Satan is, because Satan can't get to God. So he is forced to war against his children, which is us. That's where it's really played out. And we've seen that we are in a battle greater than any battle, any other earthly battle that has ever been seen. I mean, we're talking about all the world wars combined is nothing. It is a drop in the bucket to seeing what's going on in the hearts of men and women. And sometimes we see it waged outright in all of its carnage and all of its devastation. But oftentimes the devil has employed almost like a carbon monoxide lulling the saints of God into a safe, secure, comfortable sleep. But the reality is, is he's lulling them to their death. And people don't realize what is really going on. And God speaks to us through his word as we open it together. And we see this light of Christ speaking into the darkness of our existence. Showing us the reality of who God is and how he intends us to live. Now, we've been in this series as we've been talking about this invisible war. And if we're in war, anyone who's been a soldier, you need to know several different things. You need to know, who am I fighting against? What is it? How is this warfare being waged against me? Who are my enemies? But you also need to know, who's on my side? Who are my allies? Who comes alongside to help me? You need to know what our weapons are. We need to know the terrain. There are many different things that we need to realize and understand. And God has given those within his word. Now, we've talked uh, about the enemies, and you saw it in the video. We have this world. It's called this fallen world. And it's this world and it's, its belief system, its values, its philosophies that are fallen and uh, that go against God and his word. And it's in our entertainment. It's in our schools. It's the thought processes of fallen man that man values. We've, so we've talked about the world. And basically, we've defined it as anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's the world. And then we have our flesh, this fallen flesh, that this flesh that we have is fallen, which means that it is filled with sin. Not to say that we're not capable of doing good things, but we have a sinful inclination to do evil. And it comes out in each one of us in a different way. For some people, it's lying. Some people, it's stealing. Some people, it's pornography. Others, it's homosexuality. For some, it's adultery. Some people, it might be theft. Some people, it might be gluttony. Or others, it might be anorexia. It could come out in a million different ways with different people. And that's what we have to learn to battle against. We have the world, we have our sinful flesh within us, the unredeemed part of us. And then we have the devil and his minions, demons, which are fallen angels, real spirit beings that war against God's people. So we have the world, the flesh, and the devil. But those are our enemies, but we we don't often talk about our allies. And our allies are, are are there to help counteract each one of those. To counteract the world, God has given us a group of people to come together to battle alongside us. They are believers in Christ. 
And we're to, we're to be together. It's interesting that in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, the Bible gives us what is known as the full armor of God. We talk about the shield of plate, the, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the belt of truth, our feet being shod with the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What's fascinating about the armor of God is that how it all fits together on a person, yes, but it was also designed to fit together with other people. So when a battle would come, you were to take the shield and throw it down in the ground to be ready for the onslaught. Now, if you're by yourself, you're, you're a sitting duck. But when you have many people lined up with their shields, you make an impenetrable line. And that means we're to be together. That's why God has given us the church to help us battle the world, to hear the word of God, to to come alongside, to encourage one another, to sharpen one another, to, to admonish one another, rebuke one another, but to be there for one another. It's too great of a battle to fight it on your own. So we're to be together. We're, God has given us the church. So we have the church to help battle the world. And then he's given us the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. At the moment that you trust in Jesus Christ, God takes his Spirit and puts it in you to help make you a little Jesus. He wants to make you like Jesus. He wants to transform you from the inside out. He wants to give you Jesus' desires. And, and to work and live like Jesus did by putting sin to death by taking up our cross, by considering ourselves crucified with Christ, knowing that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us. And the life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. We are living his resurrection life, in essence, because sin no longer has hold of us. See, when, God, when you receive Christ, the sin and the power of sin is broken in your life, and you don't have to do that any longer. Now, that sinful flesh remains, and we have to learn to fight against it. But you now can fight against it, where before, you couldn't stop no matter how hard you tried. You say, well, I could try. I can do it. It's in my power. Try it sometime. You'll find out that you really can't. You really can't. So we have the, the, the spirit to help battle our flesh. We have the church to help battle the world. But then we have angels battling in the heavenlies going against Satan and his demons that we don't see. Now, if statistics are correct, and I believe they are, uh, as a CBS poll revealed in 2011, eight out of ten Americans believe in angels. And I'm not talking about the Los Angeles Anaheim angels. I'm not talking about the Victoria's Secret angels. I'm not talking about any of those angels. I'm talking about real angels, spirit beings that are battling on our behalf. But what are they? I mean, much of what we understand about angels is old wives' tales, stuff that we've been taught, stuff that we see in movies or on television, touched by an angel. Or Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life. We have these angels that appear in TV shows that's formed our opinions and understanding of angels and combine that with our own little imagination, and we have this understanding of what an angel is. But we have to clear that away. We have to correct that mindset, because the Bible alone gives us a great explanation of what angels are, who they are, what they do, and what that means for us. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Talk about angels, and how they help us in our spiritual battle. So I would encourage you to keep your fingers limber, if uh, you have a Bible, we're going to be turning back and forth. I have page numbers that are going to be on the screen. If you're not that familiar with your Bible or English is not your first language, I would encourage you to listen in as best as you can. I know that I talk fast. I will try to go slow. We have a lot of material to go through today. I'm tremendously excited about it. Um, I've known about angels. I've studied them. And uh, the more that I've gotten into it, the more blown away that I am. 
So we're going to delve into this subject today, but before that, let's ask for God's presence and his spirit to speak to us, to draw our hearts to him, that we might glorify his name. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence not by any merit or basis of our own, but entirely because of the name, the work, the blood of Jesus Christ. And we now can come boldly into your presence, knowing that we have been adopted into your kingdom, that we are now sons and daughters of God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Lord, speak to us. Speak to your children. We know that our inclinations are sinful even from birth, and we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us for our complacency. Forgive us for our apathy. And Lord, turn our hearts to you and renew us and encourage us with the truth of your spirit beings and how they have been working on our behalf and working in our lives and to bring about your purposes for your glory and our joy. We ask you to speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be moving back and forth, so we won't be staying in Hebrews alone. Now, we're going to walk through this, and we've got a lot of things to go through, so please try to follow along as best you can. First of all, we need to understand about angels that they are God's watchers. Watchers. Now, it's a term that may not be familiar to you. It's actually found in the book of Daniel chapter 4, and I believe in Daniel chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, we'll be going back and forth between uh, Daniel and a few other books. But in Daniel 4.13, we read this. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, it's another name for an angel, came down from heaven. These are God's watchers. These are God's servants who are working to do God's will. And what do we need to know about them? I mean, they are God's watchers, yes, but how did they come to be? Well, first of all, a person doesn't die and become an angel. All right, when I see people, someone die and someone puts on Facebook, heaven has received an angel, or you became an angel. That's bad theology. Just bad, straight-up theology. That's just your own mind. It is not biblical. A person does not die and become an angel. A good person does not die and become an angel. Nor does a bad person die and become a demon like Spawn, okay? It doesn't work that way. God has created these spirit beings. They were created to serve God. These were beings that were created to serve God. Somewhere either before Genesis 1-1 and eternity past, or between Genesis 1-1 and 1-3. These are um, an innumerable amount of angels that God created to serve himself that are beautiful, they are magnificent, they are powerful spirit beings. We know that not, not only are they created spiritual beings, but that they are smart and capable of moral judgment. These are smart creatures, Uh, Satan was an angel of God, and he managed to convince a third of the angels to partner with him in a coup d'etat against God. But God cast all of them out of heaven. And some were cast down out to earth, where they became Satan and his demons. And some, for reasons we are not given, are actually not on earth or in heaven. I don't know if you do this or not, but there are actually some that have been chained in hell, awaiting their eternal punishment to be met out. We see this in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So these are some pretty nasty angels. I mean, these, remember, Satan is a fallen angel, the spirit being. And so that there, some were so bad when they were kicked out, God put them into hell. Hell was created for Satan and his demons. Satan does not rule hell. He does not rule hell. He's not the one in the far side cartoons with a pitchfork and having goat feet and, and making sure that everybody has cold coffee. He's not, that is not it. 
He is, it's created for him. It's holding cell for him to be punished, of which those who reject Christ will go into. That is what it is, crea- uh, hell is created for, and obviously hell will be thrown into the lake of fire, uh, which comes in the book of Revelation. It will be even more awful than we can understand. So they're smart. They're capable of, more, of moral judgment. And they're also structured by kind. Structured by kind. There is not a one-size-fits-all angel, by the way. There are different kind that are revealed within the scriptures. Um, you have what's known as the archangel, which you have uh, Michael being the archangel. He's mentioned in Jude 9. Only two angels ever, uh, are ever mentioned by name in the scriptures. scriptures Gabriel and Michael. And Michael is especially known as the Archangelos. He is a, uh, a preeminent one, almost like a general, if you, if you think of that. But there are the archangels. And not only are there archangels, but there are also the seraphim. These are the seraphim, the ones that have two wings covering their eyes, two wings they fly, two wings that are covering, uh, that are covering their feet. They're the ones that circle the throne of God in Isaiah 6. It's only mentioned in Isaiah 6. And they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. They are in God's presence all the time. They are the seraphim. And then there are the cherubim. And the cherubim are mentioned within the book of Ezekiel. Uh, They have, at times, they're seen as with four faces. They are uh, brilliant, amazing creatures. Uh, They have, um, let me make sure I get this right, the face of a man, a lion, ox, and an eagle with four wings, and straight feet with a soul like the sole of a calf's foot, and hands of a man under their wings. Um, So they are different creatures than we could ever possibly imagine. So you have the cherubim, and you have the temple even being uh, beautified with them uh, that are there. And the last we could have, we have the archangels, the seraphim, the cherubim, and then simply would just be angels as Gabriel is listed. So you have these different categories. Now, some different Christian groups have a hierarchy of more angels. I'm going just the ones that we are, are pretty sure of that the scripture is very obvious in their listing. So we have these different types of angels. Now, we know that they were created superior to us. They are created superior to us. We have structured by kind, and then they are superior to us in the created order. And we get this in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And you can listen in if you don't want to turn there. It's page 1015, if you ha- or 1019, excuse me, if you have a pew Bible. But uh, Peter is writing by the Spirit and says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. These are people that he is, uh, is giving a judgment on. And he says, Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Angels aren't accusing men. But he's saying that they are, they are beautiful, they are more powerful, they are more mighty than we are. They are superior to us in the created order. But that being said, we are actually spiritually superior to them in that we can have God's salvation. We are more superior to them in that they can have God's salvation. Um, and it, it's, it's mystifying to them. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, and this is a fantastic verse. Uh, listen in if you don't, aren't able to turn there on page 1014. But uh, Peter, again, is writing by the Spirit, and he says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. He's talking about the Old Testament writers. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things in which angels long to look. The idea is the angels are pouring over. They want to understand how you and I can have salvation with God. 
It's beyond their imagination how we as sinful creatures who have been God's enemies, who have lived for our sin, I mean, for our own sin and self, that we can be transformed and have a relationship with Almighty God. And they are blown away. They cannot understand how God would show his love to us in that way. It is beyond. They they want to understand it. So we are spiritually superior to them, and they long to understand how we can have salvation. They long to understand how we can have salvation. Just as First Peter mentioned. And you know the angels, they long to understand it, but they rejoice when we do. Did you know that? In the book of Luke chapter 15, which is known as the lost chapter, you have the parable of the lost coin, you have the parable of uh, the lost sheep, and you have the parable of the lost son. It's known as the lost chapter. But in it, it talks about this woman who had lost ten silver coins in Luke 15, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 8 through 10. And it says, Or what woman, this is Jesus speaking, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. It's a lot of, mount, a lot of money. We think of coins as minor. In this culture, it, it was worth a lot of money. It's like losing a $100 bill. You're going to try to find it. And if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Now, verse 10, this is the key verse that brings this out. Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That when you turn away from your sin and embrace the Savior, heaven has a party. It's, 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 it's amazing celebration because they are seeing you come to the saving knowledge of Christ that you're turning away from your sin, from that which cannot satisfy to embrace Jesus who alone can satisfy. And God's, God's heavenly host is praising and is joyous. It is an amazing thing. You might think of it as a minor thing. But to heaven, it's amazing of what happens when a sinner repents. And they grieve when you hold on to your sin. And don't think, by the way, that your sin is not a big deal. It is a huge deal, so much that it called for Jesus to die on the cross for it. You might think of it as a minor thing, not a big deal at all. It's just a little sin. There is not a little sin. That sin merited God to put to death his son for you. It's a big deal. God came to die to give his life so sin might be defeated, that he might put away sin, not that you can stay living in it willfully. Understand how we can have salvation. They are God's watchers, they are God's servants who are in God's presence and do God's bidding. But interestingly enough, God has entrusted the task of judging them and their work to us at the end of time, his saints. See, angels actually will be judged by God's saints. Think about that. These mighty creatures, but those who are of us who are inherit salvation, who have repented of our sins and embraced Christ, not living perfect lives, but are, are moving toward holiness and wanting what God wants. At the end of time, God has entrusted us with the task of judging them. I don't know what all that means, but I do know that God has allowed that. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, page 954, or 1213, if you have a large print Bible. Paul's writing, when one of you has a grievance against one another, he's talking about there were disagreements within the body, and that people were suing one another and trying to go to court with one another. And he says, does he dare to go to, go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Why are you going to unbelievers to decide these issues? Do this in front of the church, the people of God. 
Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Can you believe that? We will judge angels. I have no idea what is involved with that. I don't know if it's the actual angels or it's the fallen angels, but I know we judge angels. I have no idea what is involved, but God does, and that's enough. We will know when we need to know. We've looked at who they are, but let's pause for a moment and look at their work. Look at their work. Let's look at some of the things that they do. Some of the things that they do. Well, now, first thing that we can see, and we've talked about it, they are surrounding God's throne offering praise. The greatest thing that a saint or a person could ever have is to be in the very presence of God. There's nothing better than that. I mean, seriously, there's no greater power. There's no greater feeling. I mean, it's interesting. The other day, uh, I was talking in my office. Uh, we're talking. Uh, we have a kind of a weekly staff meeting, and I was meeting with Patty, and she was going through some details of stuff. And my wife was here. It was for VBS. And I was sitting there, and I was talking to Patty, and I see this person walk by. And I see people walk by all the time when I'm sitting in there, but rarely do I see my wife walk by. And I, and I didn't realize this until Patty said, oh! I said, what? And she goes, you should see the smile that you just got on your face when you saw your wife. Now, I'm in love with my wife, okay? And I, I, I say that to my kids all the time. I'm like, hey, kids, guess what? I love your mother. And they're like, shut up. I'm like, you better be glad I love your mother. You wouldn't be here if I didn't. But... There's something about I long to be in my wife's presence because I love her so much. You know, there's something even greater than that in the presence of God. It's the greatest feeling, joy, and pleasure you could ever know. Greater than any person could ever give you. No disappointment. Complete, pure joy. Something about that. Being in God's presence, it is changing. It's transforming when you've been in God's presence like that. And they are in God's presence, surrounding his throne, giving praise. There's no boredom. There's no monotony. It is everlasting joy. The Bible also teaches that the angels are secretly moving between the spiritual and material world. The angels are secretly moving in ways that we don't understand. We get this in, in the book of Genesis, chapter 28, verse 12, when, when uh, Jacob actually goes to sleep and uh, he has a dream. And any dreamed, and behold, in Genesis twenty-eight twelve, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and on the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, whether that was an actual ladder, it's just a vision that he had. Uh, there are angels among us, and they sometimes do appear as regular people. They do appear as regular people at times. We see that throughout Scripture is when Abraham greeted three strangers, two were angels. One was actually God himself, known as the pre-incarnate Christ. Or when Peter and the apostles were freed from prison by an angel in Acts chapter 15, excuse me, Acts chapter 5, verse 19. So sometimes they, they, they come as regular people. And here's the, here's the thing. Sometimes they come into your life and you don't realize it. That's why the Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 13, very, very interesting. And I'd ask you to turn there with me. Hebrews, actually chapter, yeah, 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, page 1009. Very key verse here. The author of Hebrews, by the Spirit, writes, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. To strangers. People that you don't know. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And you're like, really? Do you really think that, Travis? Yes, I do. Yes, I, I really do believe that. That God will send people into your life. And, and why, are, why is God doing that? 
You ever ask why? Why does God send these people into your life that, to be entertained by you? And we're going to get to that in a moment. But he's saying that God's angels are there and we need to make sure that we are showing hospitality to them. We, don't need, to, we need to make sure that we are opening our home to strangers. Why? Because as God is checking up on us, he wants to see your life. He can see it just in himself, but because he can see anything and everything, he, he still chooses to use his servants. I mean, he could save just anybody, but he uses us to proclaim the gospel. So he could just know what's going on in your life, and he does, but he still uses his, his angels to kind of check in and monitor your life. Now, I want to talk for a moment about guardian angels. Talk about guardian angels. Now, we've all heard about the term guardian angels, and what are guardian angels? Are there, is there really such a thing as guardian angels? What does the Scripture say? You know, the Scripture doesn't say anything conclusive about a guardian angel. Now, some people say, well, I have a guardian angel. Well, that might be so, but the Scripture doesn't say anything explicitly about it. The only things that we can see in Scripture about any, that could be inferred or implied that is from Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. And in Matthew 18, verse 10, uh, Jesus is saying, he's talking about little children that are coming to him. And he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And then possibly again, you could see something in Acts chapter 12, after Peter gets freed from prison, he shows up to where the church is meeting at someone's, uh, Mary's house. He knocks on the door and a servant girl named Rhoda goes to open the door and she hears Peter and she's so freaked out that she runs back to the people and she says, it's Peter's here. They're like, you're out of your mind, he's in jail. And she's like, then it's his angel. <laughs> so it's, he's here. And, and Peter's like standing at the door going, is anybody going to open the door? What's going on here? So, so there, those could be implied. We have to be very careful of that. We do know, I mean, we're not exactly sure about the guardian angels. What we do know for sure, though, is that angels are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Angels are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And this is found in Hebrews chapter 1, verse, 13, or verse 14. We actually read today, or Jared read for us, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They are protecting God's people. They are advocating God's people. And I could tell you of instances uh, in my own life where there are certain things that should not have happened, where someone should have died or gotten hurt, and suddenly they weren't, meaning almost like they, they were falling from something, and then it's like they almost got caught and let down. I mean, you've seen instances. I'm sure you've had experiences with that. But we have to be very careful in in not going beyond what Scripture says and make sure that we are always putting our experience through the grid of the Word of God. Now, angels are sent to serve us, to protect us, to guard us. And there's a story about John Patton, who was a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands, which is now part of Vanuatu in Oceania. And he died in the early 1900s. But he tells this story. He said, One night, hostile natives surrounded the mission station intent on burning out the Pattons and killing them. Patton and his wife prayed during that terror-filled night that God would deliver them. When daylight came, they were amazed to see their attackers leave. Now, a year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ. Remembering what had happened, Patton asked the chief what had kept him from burning down the house and killing them. The chief replied in surprise, Who were all those men with you there? Patton knew no men were present. But the chief said he was afraid to attack because he had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the mission station. God sends his servants. You say, Ollie, do you believe that? Yes, I do. I do. Scripture declares it. 
I believe it. Now, God's messengers are sent to help protect you, but that's not all they do. They are also submitting reports to God on your way of life. Did you know that? See, this is why I'm going to go back to that Hebrews passage, entertaining angels unaware. They are checking to see if you are living what God wants you to do. What does God want you to do? I mean, yes, we're to love mercy, we're to act justly, we're to walk humbly with our God. But in James, we also learn that we're to take care of the widow, the orphan. Which, and it's not just talking about the widow and the orphan. It's talking about the, the foreigner, those who are down and out, the least, the lowest, the lost, those who are imprisoned, those who are hungry, those who, need, um, who are thirsty and need drink, those who need clothing, those who need shelter. God is seeing if your faith is real. Don't think that it's just between you and God and not helping people. Your vertical relationship with God is seen in your horizontal relationship with other people. That we love our enemies. We're to bless those who persecute us. We're to, to give a cup of cold water to someone who is our enemy that will heap burning coals upon their head. We, this is how your faith is seen, and the angels are checking in to see if you're living that out. Are you living that out? And not only that, we can see that they're examining our corporate worship, by the way. They're in our worship to see how your worship is, because worship is so pure. I mean, it's the essence of who we are. That's why Satan wanted worship, by the way. He wants to siphon that off. He wants that. It is the most pure commodity that we have. We cannot offer anything greater than our worship, the essence of who we are. That's why worship is such a serious thing. We have to give that unto God, but Satan wants that for himself. And in our worship, he wants to see not just our worship, but are we living the life that is revealing that we are really God's children? Now, I, I see this in a very obscure passage that you wouldn't really think about, and that is, that is actually in Hebrews chapter, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. It's a very odd passage, very strange. Most scholars have really debated on it, but it's actually talking about head coverings. Oddly enough, something we don't talk about very often, but 1 Corinthians 11 talks about uh, women wearing a head covering. And the idea within that culture was the idea of being under authority, not being promiscuous, but living under the authority and in the realm that God has ordained us to be. Meaning in the the husband and wife relationship, there is the idea of submission, as both are submitting to Christ, but the wife is intelligently submitting herself to her husband. And here, it says here, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10, This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Because the angels are looking to see, is your life representative of that? Are you, in essence, living in the order? Are you trying to do it on your own? Are you doing it in the pattern, in the way that God has ordained it to be? See, God is giving a report on your way of life. What are you doing? And don't think that you can hide anything from God, by the way. Don't think you can hide anything from God. This past week, it came out about the website Ashley Madison. I don't know if you've heard about this, but this is the adultery website. The adultery website, its tagline is this, life is short, having an affair. That's the tagline, okay? And people, people uh, have signed up to the site, and then you were told that if you were signed up to the site but you didn't want it to get out, you could pay $19 and have your name removed from the list. But here's the thing, it was never removed for the people that did it. And a hacker got in and found out there are 37 million people that signed up for this. 37 million, almost 38 million people were signing up to have an affair. Okay, now it came out this past week, and Franklin Graham in Facebook, the Billy Graham's son, in Facebook, he put this thing. He had this response about it. He says, the Bible says, be sin, your sin will find you out. 
Ashley Madison, the website for people who want to cheat on their spouses, was hacked this weekend. Their slogan is, life is short, have an affair. Hackers threaten to reveal personal data related to the 37 million users. And he says, I have news for all of those worried cheaters out there wringing their hands. God already knew. His holy word says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4.13 Times may have changed, but God's laws and standards never change. All sin has a price. The New York Daily News calls this an adultery website. Isn't it a shame that immorality is such big business? See, God knows your life. He isn't fooled. You may think that you've gotten away with something, but God knows. God knows everything. And he is more forgiving than you could imagine for those who come to him in repentance and faith because of what Jesus did on the cross for you. But he is also more wrathful, making sure that every single sin will receive a just punishment, as Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Don't try to live it on your own. Do what God wants you to do. But we, we go back. There's a third passage, actually, that, that proves this point. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. Paul is saying, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles, apostles, last of all. He's saying that he's shown us to the world. We've been beaten. We've gone through all these trials and tribulations. He is showing us off to the world. He said, I, um, He exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Because angels are watching your life to seeing if you are living the life that God is commanded and desired and purchased you to live. That's what His Word says to us. Now, As we speak about angels, we must adhere to the scriptural warnings about them. There's some warnings. Um, The study of angels is called angelology, which is a great study. It's a theological study. It's something that we're doing right now. But if you get consumed with angels, that's called angel mania. And that is not cool. Uh, Just have this preoccupation. And the scripture warns us. Sometimes it warns us by what it doesn't say, then rather what it does say meaning that it never gives us an example of something that we should do. It's really showing us how we are to live and what we also should not do. And what I mean by that is this. Um, as we look at Scripture's warning, we have to understand that we are warned not to pursue them. You're not to go out and pursue angels. This isn't Ghostbusters with Egon Spangler. Okay, You're not out there trying to cross the streams, trying to catch a paranormal thing. That's not what you try to do. We don't, we don't pursue angels. That's not what God has, has shown his word. You don't see anyone in scripture ever doing that. That example is not there. We're not to pursue angels or devil or demons. We're not to interact in that regard, not to pursue them. We're also not to pray to them. We're not to pray to them. You say, well, I was taught to pray to this angel. This is my guardian angel. Nowhere in scripture are we ever taught to pray to anyone except to God alone. And the scripture says this in second, I think it's in second Timothy, excuse me, first Timothy 2, 5 through 6. And the scripture lays this out very clearly and it says, for there, is only, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. One mediator, one person that we go through, one person's name that we pray in, we pray to God the Father through God the Son as the Spirit awakens us to the reality of how we should 
pray. So we're not to pursue angels, we're not to pray to them, and we're definitely not to praise them. You don't praise them. Worship is serious business in the sight of God. Revelation 19 and Revelation 22 talk about this very exclusively because the angel is showing John the revelation, known as the revelations. He is showing him what is to come in the future, and John is overwhelmed. It's so amazing, so wonderful, so beyond his imagination. It's it's greater than he could ever imagine. That he falls down to worship the angel, and the angel freaks out. And well, he should. He says, you must not do that. Worship God. This is too serious. Please don't. It's so serious in the sight of God. Revelation 19, 10. He fell down at his feet to worship it. But he said to me, you must not do that. It's emphatic. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And again, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 8 through 9, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Worship is for God alone. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul writes, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Don't do it. Don't listen. So we have to make sure that we do not praise them. We also have to make sure that we are guarding against pretenders. Guarding against pretenders. Now this is very, very important. Very important. Because the scripture says very clearly that, remember, Satan is an an, was an angel, fallen angel, and he knows how to masquerade himself as an angel of light. He knows how to be an angel. I mean, he's, he's been there. He knows the lingo. He knows to present himself. And he presents himself as an angel of light in order to get you off your pure devotion to Christ. But, but Paul writes about something about that. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, and he warns people. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, I am astonished. He's writing to the Galatians, which church now would be in Turkey. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. He's saying there's no other gospel, but not a real gospel anyway. He's saying they're false gospels, and you're turning away from what the gospel is. You're believing false teaching. He says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, and he gives like a hypothetical situation here. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The word is anathema. The idea is condemned straight to hell. That's how serious the teaching is. And he says, as we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, why do I tell you to that? Because there will be beings that have appeared over time that have pretended to be beautiful angels and give revelations to people that are addition to the scriptures. The Bible is closed, meaning that there is no more revelation in that regard, that it is sufficient enough for salvation. And we are not to add to or take away what God has decreed. We cannot add to his words. And there have been angels appeared through time with different faiths, different sects, that said we had an angel appeared because the church had become so corrupt. No. Yes, the church, has the church been corrupted at times? You bet. But God has said in his word that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's not going to contradict himself. So he's not going to add to something that he already said was closed. So if that's coming, that means it's false. Does everyone, I hope, understand the seriousness of what is going on here? 
And Paul is saying, if any angel appears to you and gives you a different thing, it is off. It is wrong. Guard yourself. We have to guard against pretenders. We're warned that some angels might come and be pretenders, and we have to guard against that. Guard against the pretenders. Now, as we finish this off, I have some questions for us to consider. You want to say, well, how does this apply to me, Travis? This is, we've learned a lot about angels. That's great. How does this affect me? What does this mean for my life? There are some questions that I want us to consider. First of all, here's the, are you pursuing, pursuing holiness? Now, it might be a strange question. How does, what does that have to do with angels? Because angels are giving reports on your life, and they are in our worship, they are observing your life, are you really living the life of the truth that you espouse? Is your life really representative of that fact? Are you just living in sin? You're giving, if that's the case, if you're holding on to your sin, you're living in a state of it and saying, I'm okay with God, you're actually, you're actually giving Satan ammunition. And you're actually, what you're doing is harming yourself and you're causing Gentiles, people that are unbelievers, to blaspheme the name of Christ because of your disobedience. You're giving them ammunition. We need to be pursuing a life of holiness, which means entertaining the stranger. Means giving that cup of cold water, feeding those who are hungry, giving drink to those that are thirsty, visiting the prisoner, taking care of the widow, the orphan. Is it going to make you uncomfortable? Yes. Yes. God has never called us to be comfortable. God has called us to be holy and faithful, even if that means suffering. That's what he's called us to do. Are we pursuing holiness? Secondly, are you, are you not, I mean, not are you just pursuing holiness, are you practicing hospitality? Are you opening up your home, or is it a closed thing that you can't let people in because you don't want people to see your real life? Come to my house. Not right now after the service, but if you were to come to my house, you would see that my house is not what it should be right now. I've got exposed drywall. I've got, matter of fact, no drywall in a couple places. I've got just subfloor. And it's sometimes embarrassing to have people over because my house is such a mess. Not, 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 I'm not indicting my wife, okay? It's not a mess in that regard. It's a mess because of me. She does a great job. You can tell her that, okay? This is me speaking now. I've got doors off the wall. I've got paint that's going on. I can't ever get time enough to do primer and stuff like that. But you know what? We still have people come over. We still have people come and stay at our house. Sometimes we have dishes in the sink. You know why? Because we're opening up our home. We're entertaining people. We have, because we're offering our home. We've had people that need, we've had missionaries that have come to us. We've had people that have been down and out and needed a place to sleep for the night. We've had them come and stay at our place. Now, I'm not saying you automatically direct them to my house, okay? I'm not telling you that. Open up your own house, okay? Do that. Because what the Bible calls us to do is entertain. I'm not talking about having a party where you get dressed up. I'm saying is open up your home to help others. That's what God's calling us to do. Practice hospitality. That's what it means to be the church. Do not think that you can just show up, sit in the seat, and go on with your life. That is not what God has called us to do. He's called us to be together. As messed up as we are, he's called us to do that and work that out and speak the truth into one another's lives and get to know one another and work through our differences and talk through things. And, 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 and these are, this is messy. But it's wonderful when it comes together. Because my vision of God has grown because of my interaction with other people and people interacting to me and telling me and calling me on sin in my life or calling me when I've done something dumb, but yet speaking the truth, encouraging me. That's what God has called us to be. We're to be pursuing holiness and we're to be practicing hospitality, being the body that God wants us to be. 
And it might be a little awkward, but again, awkward is awesome. Awesome. So, we're to be making sure that we are pursuing holiness, practicing hospitality. We also need to be praying confidently. Praying confidently. Now, I want us to understand this passage based on, uh, understand this point based on two passages. The first is in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. That's in the New Testament, latter part of your, your Bible. You can flip through that. There's a page number if you have one of the few Bibles. But Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Then he goes on to talk about the armor of God, talking about how we're to arm ourselves. But in verse 18, he actually, if you skip down, he says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me, to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, the mysterion, as it is in Greek, of the gospel, a mystery that was once held back but has been revealed in the New Testament. It was a mystery in the Old, now it's revealed in the New, for which I am an ambassador in chains. He's in prison and he's writing this. But I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now see, God has decreed that our prayers open doors. That's what he's saying there. Pray in the Spirit because there's a battle going on that you don't know about and God is actually using angels to work on our behalf through your prayers. Now we see this in Daniel chapter 10. You want to flip to Daniel chapter 10 if not, want to listen in. But in Daniel chapter 10, we see an angel coming to Daniel as a direct result of his prayer. And in Daniel chapter 10, we read this, And behold, a hand touched me. This is Daniel writing. And set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, Man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. It's a direct result of his prayer. He says, And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, meaning he's seeking him in prayer, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. He's referring to, it's a, it's a, a term that's using, uh, referring to the devil in some way or one of his demons. But Michael, one of the chief princes, one of the archangels, came, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For this vision is for days yet to come. See, when you pray, God works. And sometimes he sends his angels to do stuff for you. Pretty amazing to think about. It's incredible to think about. We get a picture of this, and I shared this story last week, and it's very similar to the one that Patton described in the passage that I read to you, a story that I read earlier. But it's merits being shared again. But we understand the following story was reported by a medical missionary at his home church in Michigan. We're not sure uh, from where the story originated, so we're unable to give complete credit, but it beautifully illustrates the point. But it's, it's talking about serving at a small field hospital in Africa, and this other guy was actually in the New Hebrides. And this man says, I traveled every two weeks by bicycle, bicycle through the jungle to a nearby city for supplies. This required camping overnight halfway. And on one of these trips, I saw two men fighting in the city. One was seriously injured, so I treated him and witnessed to him of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then I returned home without incident. And upon arriving in the city several weeks later, I was approached by the man I had treated earlier. He told me that he had known that I had carried money and medicine, and he said, Some friends and I followed you into the jungle, knowing you would camp overnight. We waited for you to go to sleep and planned to kill you and take your money and drugs. 
And just as we were about to move into your campsite, we saw that you were surrounded by 26 armed guards. The man says, I laughed at this and, and said I was certainly all alone out in that jungle campsite. But the young man pressed the point, no, sir, I was not the only one to see the guards. My Javi friends also saw them, and we all counted them. It was because of those guards that we were afraid and left you alone. At this point in the church presentation in Michigan, one of the men in the church jumped up and interrupted the missionary and asked, can you tell me the exact date when this happened? The missionary thought for a while and recalled the date. The man in the congregation told this side of the story. He said, on that night in Africa, it was actually morning here, and I was preparing to play golf. As I put my bag in the car, I felt the Lord leading me to pray for you. In fact, the urging was so strong that I called the men of this church to pray for you. Will all of those men who met with me that day please stand? The men who had met that day to pray stood, and there were 26 men. Angels are real. They're amazing. But they are nothing compared to Jesus. I would be remiss if I spent this entire time talking about angelic beings and not the Savior whom they serve. I want to close with the full passage that that, uh, Jared read for you. He actually read verse 13 and 14, but I want to read to you the full passage of Hebrews 1. I would encourage you to turn with me. But it, it puts it into place. I mean, angels are amazing beings. They are. But when compared to Jesus, there's no comparison. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Long ago, and, and in many ways, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for those, for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels don't save. Jesus does. Angels didn't assume flesh to save us. Jesus did. Angels didn't die on the cross in our place. That was Jesus again. The angels marvel at him. Do you? He is the Savior of the world, God incarnate, the God who assumed flesh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, 
the Son, in a way that we cannot understand, stepped out of time, out of eternity, into time, assumed our flesh, but lived our life, but was that without sin. He died on the cross. He gave his life on the cross for you, for your sins. Taking the wrath of God upon himself, he died your death and rose again three days later after paying that price. Have you placed your faith in him? You may believe in angels, but you believe in the Savior they serve. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we we are amazed and we thank you for your angels that are even here right now. Lord, we pray that our worship might be pleasing in your sight. And we pray that you fill this place right now with your holy presence. Lord, knowing that you are here, that you're drawing us near to yourself. And Lord, we don't come to worship angels. We come to worship the one, the one and only Son, the one who died to save us. Lord, we rejoice at that. Lord, we know our sins. We know our struggles. And Lord, today I know that there are some that are here that have not yet confessed you, that are holding on to their sin, that they have lived a life of rebellion to you, and yet you are calling them unto yourself because of your great love. Lord, I pray by the power of your Spirit that you touch them. Lord, your scripture says that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And Lord, I pray today that there is that one person that is here that is holding on, that they know that they have lived a life of rebellion to you, that you have showed and revealed in them the Son of God, knowing that he died for their behalf. Lord, I pray that they might repent of their sins and turn under you as they believe and understand that grace that gift that you have given unto us that we receive by faith. Save them now. And Lord, for those that are here that have already confessed you, but Lord, they know that their life has been in rebellion, I pray that you grant them the gift of tears, that you call them back into yourself. Lord, help them to have that godly sorrow that leads to life, not the worldly sorrow that leads to death, but they might truly in the depth of their heart comprehend the, wet, the, the depth and the width of Christ's love. That they, and Lord, we know it's incomprehensible, but Lord, give us a greater understanding that we might turn back unto you. Lord, help us not to go through the motions, but help us to be living ambassadors, living sacrifices that reflect back to you the radiance of what you mean to us. And may our church this body of believers, sinful and broken though we are, this spiritual triage, this hospital, may we be a lighthouse to our community for those that are in darkness and living their lives in rebellion toward you. Lord, if it means giving up our lives to do so, may we do so faithfully and joyously, knowing that you will reward us. So glorify your, glorify your name in our church. Glorify your name in, these, in each individual's life for your glory, your praise and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.